This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We are in a debate about speech. The way that it's being framed as as victimization of the right, as the right cannot have a space in which it can have its ideas shared on a campus, is where I take umbrage. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My uh, guest today is Carol Anderson, who is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University, author of the fantastic book, White Rage. I'm excited to give you this conversation, and I'm a little sorry about the order in which it's coming out. I obviously just had this debate with Sam Harris about race and IQ. This conversation with Carol, which is about race in America, which is largely what I'm arguing needs to be in that discussion in a much more fundamental way, this was taped before all this went down. So while the the conversation will feel, I think, like it is in dialogue with that one, I really want to say, even though Carol does mention Charles Murray towards the end, it is not. Um, This was done before it. Uh, Carol had no context on any of that. This is a conversation that uh, is about where racial aggression in this country comes for, which parts of it we see and which parts of it we don't, when when it is predictable, when it has happened, and the ways in which black rage is in some ways overly visible in American life, but white rage, it manages to be almost invisible. It manages to, to operate through institutions and men in suits and, and, and look a totally different way in a way that really distorts our understanding of the reality of race relations in this country and why we are in the place we are in today. So I'm not going to give it too much more preamble than that. Carol Anderson, her her work on this is fantastic. I really do recommend her book. And uh, I really enjoyed having this conversation with her. And I think you will too. So here she is. Carol Anderson, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Ezra. Well, thank you so much for being here. So I wanted to start in in a place that I think a lot of the conversation is. We are having this conversation, I'm reading all these books about how American democracy in this age of Trump, in some ways the Trump is a symptom of this great decline we're seeing. Um, Yasha Monk talks about how we're devolving into either an illiberal democracy or democratic liberalism. And a lot of these diagnoses of the present feel persuasive to me. 
But this idea that we were something better before, that we were the democracy we imagine ourselves to be in the past, when I, when I read your book and when I think about our past with race and the amount of racial exclusion our, our country was built on, I wonder if some of our current alarm works off of a, an unhealthy nostalgia for a past that wasn't nearly as democratic or liberal as we like to think it was. Oh, absolutely. Um, I agree. One of the the things that strikes me about the United States is that America is really, truly aspirational. Um, that is part of what, to me, sets it apart. When it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. When it talks about the Constitution and our Bill of Rights, which is the oldest Constitution in the world, all of those things are about who America thinks it is. And one of the ways that struggles have happened are that marginalized people, African Americans, women, Native Americans, Latinos, um, they have used that aspiration to hold it up to the United States and says, this is what you say you are, but this is what you do. You know, it's like looking at the picture of Emmett Till in the casket the young 14-year-old boy who was absolutely mutilated in Mississippi in 1955. And so it is in those aspirations that the struggles have in fact happened. Yet those aspirations get encoded as achievements um, so that you get this longing for this mythical past John Roberts in the Shelby County v. Holder decision, the one that the Supreme Court ruled in a 5-4 decision that basically gutted the Voting Rights Act, they said, you know, racism is no longer. Um, we, we have moved beyond that. That thing happened in the past, but it doesn't happen now, not like this. And so having that sense of America as achievement is then what helps in terms of creating a sense of a longing for a past we never had. So this idea of, of aspiration as achievement is, is really interesting. And I'm curious in how you see that process of transmutation. Because on some level, we learn about the civil rights era and, and the brutal beatings and the lynchings and, and the violence. We learn about the assassinations of Martin Luther King and, and so many others. These parts of our history, while, while they're not always front-loaded, they're not hidden either. And yet, when we look back on our past, we do so with a real sense of the story being pretty clean. How is it that we end up seeing our previous eras as cleaner than they were, even as we know these things that happened in them? And I think part of the reason why we get this good versus evil kind of scenario is that one, it makes it easier to tell a narrative, so it's not all muddy and murky, but that we can identify the bad people, not a system that is corrupt, not a system that is racist, not a system that breeds systemic inequality, but that there are bad people. So you get a Bull Connor out of Birmingham. You get a Sheriff Jim Clark out of Selma. And by identifying that kind of virulent racism in bad people, 
then when you remove the people, then the system is fine. Once you take the signs down, colored only, white only, the system has corrected itself. And so that is part of the way that the narrative of America had a problem. It faced its problem. It fixed its problem. We are now a better America, a stronger America. We are the America. That kind of triumphal narrative then creates a massive elision over all of the systemic inequality, all of the human debris left behind by slavery and Jim Crow. And therefore, it makes it really easy then to to switch to the new narrative. America had issues. It dealt with them. So any problems that you see now are individual issues. These are issues of people not taking personal responsibility for the choices that they make. And solely that. I'm so glad you bring that up. So I'm, I'm doing a project on the racial wealth gap right now. And one of the things that has been really interesting to me as I've been as I've been working on this is the way in which our aspirational language around equality and the language that is very effective within the context of American political activism sometimes becomes an impediment to actual real equality. So you have this demand that there should be equality under the law, that the law should treat everyone the same. And as more law comes into conformity to that idea, then you have these claims made. But look, there's been all this past inequality. There's been slavery, segregation, um, redlining. People have been locked out of the credit markets. If there's going to be economic equality, there needs to be some compensation for that. And people say, wait, wait, wait. You said equality under the law. So now from this moment on, we're colorblind. And if you can't, you know, as wealth compounds among the people who have it, if you can't climb up that ladder, that's on you. And then it's actually very hard to offer an answer to that because if, if the idea has been the aspiration is colorblindness under the law, then how do you say, well, actually, we didn't, you know, there should simultaneously somehow be a, a reckoning for what happened previously. And, and that feels like a place where a lot of our aspirations for equality have actually come apart. And I would say that that has been deliberate. The The issue of whether just removing the signs would do it, I mean, when you really think about it, it's, 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 it's farcical. <laughs> uh, to think about, for instance, you know, and part of this is what I document in White Rage, what happened with our educational system where we systematically chose to not fund black schools. We had the law, Plessy v. Ferguson, that said separate but equal. Then we had states and locales make the conscious decision to do separate and unequal, decidedly unequal. And we had them do that well after Brown. Yet another law of the land that the states chose to ignore. Yet we look up and we say, hey, we've got brown. So our schools are now functioning. And so the schools that don't function must be a result of that the people who live there don't really care about education or they would adequately fund education. They must not care about schools. And 
all of that is a lie. It's a myth. And I worked to expose that, like in the Rodriguez decision that happened in 1971, I believe. That decision was based on Brown. In San Antonio, um, in a district called the Edgewood District that was 96% Mexican-American and African-American, they taxed themselves at the highest level allowed to fund their schools and could only generate, because of property values, $21 per capita, $21 per student. Whereas the virtually all-white wealthy district, Alamo Heights, taxed themselves significantly lower than that and generated over $300 per student. Now, what we know is the way that public policy shapes property values. Where we choose to put the landfill. Do we put the landfills in the wealthy white suburbs? Or do we put the landfills where poor people live? Where we choose to have our zoning laws, where we allow red light districts and where we don't. Those sorts of things. All of that, um, and redlining, all of that ties into property values. And so... This thing about colorblindness is it only comes into play when we want to say, hey, we've done everything we can, but we're not colorblind. We know when we say good schools, who we envision being in good schools. We know when we say bad neighborhoods, who we envision being in bad neighborhoods. And we govern ourselves accordingly in terms of public policy. And so the we're colorblind, and so we we the law says everyone gets treated equally, but we have set it up where that equal treatment has not happened, even under the law. But that seems to me to be a place where you can end up in a very tricky rhetorical space. And, and I mean that in this respect. Uh, something that you document in the book and that I think I hear in your answer there is, there's certainly been a lot of intentionality in American racial inequality. But there are also plenty of people who, you know, live in a suburb and don't feel there are they are implicated in any of this, who just think they're going about their thing. And when they're asked to make a sacrifice or make a change, when they're told their kid is going to get bused somewhere else or that their school district is going to get changed or that, you know, somebody wants them to pay a tax that will go into schools that are not the one their child is part of, they hear that and they think, no, this has nothing to do with me. And that it isn't about all, I, I don't know that the colorblindness there is always an intentional strategy for inequality, but it's a very powerful one. And, and so I guess my question is, what do you say to them? What do you say to the people who they don't feel they've ever had anything to do with this? And yet for there to be recompense or, or, or a sharp enough disruption to a system that has created inequality for centuries now, it would have to ask something of them. It would have to change something of them. And they might even have to lose something as part of it. And I think that, um, so I've got two pieces to that. And so I hope I remember both. <laughs> um, one is, you know, when we talked about the kind of aspiration of America, there are, there's another narrative in America, and that's the narrative of merit. And where we see those who have resources as having earned it, 
from the dent of their labor, the sweat of their brow, the brilliance of their thought and their pen. They have earned it. It is merit. Whereas those who are struggling, those who are poor, it is because they haven't earned it. And so then when you say, for instance, to those in Alamo Heights that they have a responsibility to ensure quality education for all children in San Antonio, it's like, why? We've earned this. And why are you taking this away from us when we have earned it? So that becomes where the the rhetorical landmine is, is in the sense of merit and meritocracy in the United States. And the second component in that is that that sense of merit then becomes so individualized or going back no further than the the parents who who worked hard in order for me to have this, that it requires an elision of history so that you don't see the redlining that said that Black people live here and, and they do not have access to any of the FHA loans or any of the bank loans, whereas whites can live here and they get incredible access to low interest rates and uh, great home loans where they don't have to put a lot down. So incredible support from the federal government to help create the meritocracy, that lifestyle that says, look what I've earned. And because the government appears to be almost invisible in this meritocracy, it allows the the myth and the narrative to live on. And that's part of where we are, this sense of I've earned this. One of the the things that I also discuss in White Rage um, is that it's able to be sustained because of the the sense of a zero sum game and it's one of the things that you said the you know the whites in the suburbs who who have worked hard they're like why should i have to give up something when we frame our society as a zero sum game that the only way that you can get will be at my expense and the only way that i can get will be at your expense that framing immediately sets up the kind of, of, of viciousness and polarization that we see. But think about it this way. What happens if we fund our schools? That means we're not funding prisons <laughs> to the extent that we are. We didn't have a problem spending $1 trillion on the war on drugs. But yet when it comes to funding schools, then all of a sudden the lines get drawn. I mean, so this isn't a resource issue. This is a framing issue. So let me ask you about the question of what is framing and what isn't. I've become Mm -hmm. in this era obsessed with the question of zero-sumness in politics. Mm -hmm. It is so intuitive to think about things as zero sum. So intuitive Mm -hmm. to think about an immigrant coming over the border 
getting a job and that being a job that was could have gone to someone else. And one of the things I struggle with in this is that these ideas are somehow simultaneously true and not true. And that we have a conversation here that I think lacks that nuance a lot of the time. That someone like me comes in and says, the economy is not zero sum. The number of jobs are not a fixed pie. The way we spend our resources, you know, if we funded the war in Iraq, we could fund the construction of schools in Baltimore. And that's all true. And then it's also the case that if you're talking about, say, affirmative action in the University of California system, which is where I went to school, there are literally so many slots. Or if you're talking about cultural representation on television shows, there are only so many, you know, lead spots. And that there are ways in which resources going from one place to another, there is at least zero-sumness for some people in that. And this is a place to me where I find myself very unsettled by the conversation we have, because on the one hand, I feel like I can make these policy arguments to Ambu in the face where if you take a big enough perspective, I mean, a country is not a zero-sum thing. The world is not zero-sum. Otherwise, we'd all be in exactly the same role we were in, you know, when we were in caves. But on the other hand, when people feel that there are zero-sum questions in politics, they're not necessarily wrong in the context of their own lives, not 100%. And and I don't know that I, – I don't feel like I hear people able to walk a middle ground on that, nor do I feel that I'm able to do it myself. I'm, I'm curious how you think about this. So – and I think about it. So let's take the University of California system. Um, I was – at a talk several years ago where Troy Duster, who was in the sociology department at Berkeley at the time, and he's now, I believe, at NYU, um, gave a talk on affirmative action in the University of California system, which had clearly been cast as a zero-sum game, right? There are only so many slots. And he talked about Berkeley. And at the time, he said Berkeley had 3,500 freshman slots. And that was determined by um, the number of residence halls, the number of faculty, the number of, you know, operational resources that were in place to, to be able to support a class of that size. He said they received 16,000 applications for 3,500 slots. 9,000 of those students had 4.0s. So automatically. That explains why I didn't get into Berkeley. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. But see, I was giving you an out there, Ezra. I appreciate it. (laughs) Because there were, you know, so automatically 5,500 4.0s were not going to get into Berkeley if they just like cut it off somehow alphabetically or whatever, there were going to be 5,500 4.0s. And that meant that there was some three nines there and some three eights that didn't stand a chance. And so from there, then he started talking about, okay, so how did we get here? Because one of the things is that you really don't want a class full of nothing but 4.0s. What if you have a three nine who's an incredible violinist? What if you have a three eight who is an amazing artist? I mean, that's the kind of vibrancy that you want in your freshman class. A 2.2 so, who shows a real promise of political blogging. 
say, by Let's example. Let's see. I think that would be, um, um, are we projecting here? <laughs> Just a hypothetical. <laughs> exactly, right? So, And so then you really start having fewer than 3,500 4.0s who aren't getting in. One of the things that he then pointed to is like, so part of what is um, determining our 3,500 are the, the kind of resources that we have. But California, you know, went whole hog in terms of mass incarceration. And he talked about how they could see the dollar for dollar exchange happening, moving out of the higher education budget and into the corrections budget. So... Yes, there are so many slots, but there didn't have to be so few slots. But we made a conscious decision as a society about where we would invest and where we wouldn't. And so to me, a major part of that conversation has to be about who we are valuing, what we are valuing, and being able to take a much longer lens. Because if it's just about me, I, and my, we collapse as a society. When I'm giving talks on white rage, I ask how many people saw hidden figures, and many have. And then I talk about that moment after Brown when the Soviets launched Sputnik. And the United States makes a conscious decision, even as it says, we're afraid of nuclear annihilation. We've, this is a national security issue. We've got to have the brain power to fight the Cold War. We're making hundreds of millions of dollars of investment in science and engineering education for our citizens. And then makes a conscious decision after Brown that... University of Alabama, the University of Georgia, and Ole Miss, and the rest of them can continue to have whites-only admissions policies. Wow. In the midst of a national security crisis, but think about what our education system would look like. Think about what our population would look like in a knowledge-based, technology-driven economy if we had made that investment then. You're making me think of two things here that I'll try to take in order. One is, I had a conversation the other day, speaking of Berkeley, with Ian Haney Lopez, who's out there. And we were talking about actually similar issues to this. And, and he was making an argument to me that one of the ways in which this conversation is truly devilish mm -hmm. is that the zero-sum idea is this great way in which lower-class white workers and children are, are, are kept back too, that racial resentment and group resentments are used to direct folks into political coalitions and into a way of thinking that ultimately ends with them getting less as well. And, and so there's one way of looking at this, I think, that is there is a genuine group competition where people correctly understand their incentives on some level as being pitted against each other. And then there's another way of understanding it, which is that there are people who like to do some of the pitting against each other because they correctly understand their incentives as keeping group conflict going. And, and is that part of the argument you're making? Do you Is that just a, a thing that is would be nice to say in a way that would be nice to view the world? Or is that true? And, you know, some of this is 
illusory and self-interested. Um, and, you know, it's just been a very, very effective way at keeping folks from seeing a more unified sense of economic identity that oh. could benefit all of them. Oh, absolutely. Playing the racial card, pitting folks against each other. Neil Foley wrote a brilliant book about Texas, Central Texas called The White Scourge. And that white scourge is cotton. And what happened in Central Texas is that you had Mexican workers, you had poor blacks, and you had poor whites all working on these cotton farms. And you had the rich planters. And the rich planters were really, really good at pitting these three poor groups against each other so that they would never unify and say, you know, why is he making all of that and he's not doing any of the work? <laughs> Instead of having those conversations, it's like, look at those Mexicans getting to pick more than we can. Look at those whites. Look at those blacks, right? And so when you're able to, to create that kind of anger and animosity among groups that should be looking at a common interest, it allows a, a kind of very pernicious, destructive system to stay in place. Um, we saw the same thing in East St. Louis in 1917 um, that led to the East St. Louis race riot. And that is where factory owners, they wanted to stop unionizing. And so they had these strict quotas where it would be one-third whites, one-third white immigrants, and then one-third blacks as the workforce. And they would pit these groups against each other about who was going to get more work or who was going to get more pay till these groups were at each other's throats. And so therefore could not unionize which they really needed to be able to do, given the pittance that they were being paid and the horrific conditions under which they were working. And so this is old, tried, and true, even to the point, uh, you know, I talk about this in White Rage, where after the Civil War, as the Freedmen's Bureau is coming down to build schools, Poor whites were absolutely resentful of these schools because they saw them as only being for blacks, when in fact these schools were for everybody that could not read and write. But that sense of whiteness as property, as a valuable property, as Cheryl Harris wrote in that incredible law review article, that that sense of whiteness carried with it much more value than even the kind of material wealth that could accrue from an education or the kind of material wealth, you know, when we're talking about union, that could accrue from unionizing. And so let's take it forward to the 2016 election. That kind of whiteness had so much value that even when a supposed billionaire tells you he's a populist and doesn't have any kind of program that, that deals with something that can improve the quality, the material quality of your life, that 
because he's coming in the wake of a black man in the White House and he's promising to basically make America great again, which when you move past all of the coded language means make America white again, to reinstall, reinstill that sense of, of whites as dominant, that was more important than anything else. That's, that's where we are. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So I'll be honest, I listened to some of this and there's a part of me that rebels against it. And it rebels against it because I am skeptical of believing that I know people's interests better than they do. That I I, I hear this and mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's easy to sit here and tell people w- what it is that they really need. But, you know, maybe the psychic payoff of feeling dominant is actually really big. And, and so it's worth it. And then I watch what's happening with Trump. And I, I, I would I would part a little bit from the way you portray the 2016 election. I think that if you were listening to him, he said he did have a program. And I think his program was to split apart this idea of the Republican Party as a party of white identity politics from the Republican Party as a party of small government. And he said, you know what, I'm going to raise taxes on rich guys like me and I'm going to protect Medicaid and everybody's going to get great health care and I'm going to bring back the steel jobs. And then he gets into office and he just puts it right back together. He emphasizes a white identity politics, but he goes after Medicaid and he takes health insurance away from poor whites and poor blacks and poor Hispanics alike. And, you know, he puts Goldman Sachs bankers in charge of everything he possibly can and goes after NFL players for kneeling Mm -hmm. on the field and keeps that part of his base. Mm -hmm. And I and this is one Mm -hmm. of those moments where it becomes hard for me to hold on to this idea that there isn't an incredible deception being played out here, that even if people are getting a psychic charge out of this, the degree to which the economic interests of even of these downscale whites just get abandoned by this political coalition that uses group division very, very effectively to hold on to their votes. It seems like really profound. It's one thing when that's what they're promising to do, but it's another when it, they said they'd do the opposite. And even so, it's the same, the same play being run again. It becomes very, it becomes very hard to not, to, to, to resist the idea that, yeah, this is actually something that, that people are doing consciously and, and it works. But I guess that then in a long way is my question for you. Why does that work? Why when folks see Donald Trump not doing the other side of that, not doing anything for these communities being wrecked by opioids, not doing anything for people's health insurance and in fact letting their premiums Mm -hmm. go skyrocketing, why is it that people who do feel this in their everyday lives, who do have interests that are at stake here, who do have families they have to take care of, why is it that that doesn't come apart? Because- People, people do feel the effects of this. Yes, they do. And, and I think that um, 
the best way I can can get at it is when you think about who Trump attacks. He attacks black players for kneeling. He attacks Jay-Z for calling him out, but he doesn't attack Eminem. Muslim bans, Mexicans are rapists. Judge Curiel can't possibly be a good judge. Puerto Ricans just want government handouts and government to do everything for them. And so what he provides that base is that psychic energy that they're white. And that there are these people who are less than. It's pernicious. It's not logical. But racism isn't logical. I read a piece that dealt with the Affordable Care Act in a county in Kentucky. Oh, by Sarah Cliff. That's a Vox yes, piece. it was a great, great piece. It <laughs> great is a great piece. piece. Oh, and so you remember there's this piece where, you know, where they're talking about husbands get on, on getting going to get a liver transplant, diabetes under control, son who is over 21 is still on the insurance and his health is improving because he's able to get regular checkups. I mean, all of these benefits that are accruing to poor whites in this area in Kentucky. And then instead of this, whoo, there's this, yeah. But there are those other people who aren't paying as much as we are, and they've got better health insurance, and they don't deserve it. So let me ask you then about what it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. There is a feeling that many have that this is a, a particularly, maybe even a uniquely bad moment in American politics. And this goes back to, to, to the things I was saying as we mm -hmm. launched our conversation, that we are in a real moment of backsliding of retrenchment that Donald Trump has unleashed these chaotic forces into, into American political life that maybe our politics won't even survive, right? There's an apocalyptic threat in commentary right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people talk about 60s and the 70s and the 80s and, and you know, as a better time in American politics, a time when we were less polarized, a time when we were less divided. And <laughs> well, I, I think I think from your laughter, I, I get a sense of, of how you think about this. But this is something that I'm struggling with because mm -hmm. I recognize and, and feel myself the alarm of this era. Mm -hmm. And then when I think about what was actually happening in society in some of these previous eras, assassinations of political leaders, Vietnam War protests, um, mm -hmm. urban riots, I mean, mm -hmm. unbelievable things were happening that are not happening now. And Yet we look at it and we, we look back and think, oh, well, the story of the 20th century is a story of, of American ascension and, you know, democratic consolidation. Is this a particularly bad period in American life or is it just a period that feels a little bit crazy? We've had bad times. We've had really bad times. You know, Civil War, bad times. Great Depression, bad times. What makes this feel so different, however— is that institutionally we feel weaker and that institutionally all of the guardrails and checks and balances don't appear to be working the way that they should. So that, you know, you have a president who clearly is ill-equipped for the job. You also have a president who appears to be compromised by a foreign power. 
But you don't have a Congress that has provided that check or that balance. Instead, it appears in some ways like you have the the House Intelligence Committee that, you know, just wrapped up its report. Well, the Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee just wrapped up its report going, there was some Russian meddling, but there was no conclusion. So, yep, we're done. So you don't have the kind of sense that democracy is working because the institutions themselves feel weaker and compromised. That's where I think the sense of apocalypse and dread come from. So let me challenge this a little bit, because this Mm -hmm. is where I am struggling. I think back to what I read in your book and and what I've read in others Mm -hmm. about past periods in American history. Mm -hmm. And we have a country, let's say in the 30s and 40s and 50s, Mm -hmm. that is just flatly not small d democratic where there is just widespread disenfranchisement, particularly, mm-hmm. although not only, across the South. Mm-hmm. And America's political institutions coalesce to protect that, at least in that period. Mm-hmm. Anti-lynching laws get filibustered, right? That's what mm-hmm. the filibuster is used for. I mean, you know all this much better than me, of course, but <laughs> it, that's what it's used for then. But somehow everybody does it with a suit and without saying crazy things on Twitter. <laughs> And, and and the system, even if it is working against its stated aspirations and modes of functioning, is nevertheless somehow working the way it's meant to work. And now you have this president and in some cases these members of Congress who are, are acting really strangely in the public eye. But is what they're doing really worse? Is the lack of oversight, of accountability, of... Um, the, the the lack of adherence to the country we're supposed to be really worse. This is the thing that that I am trying to check in myself because I am living this every day. And I will tell you, it is a constant state of emotional alarm to cover this. It, it makes you feel like everything is on fire 100% of the time. And then I get done with my week and I think, what did I cover this week? Did I really cover the collapse of American institutions? And it's like, no, I covered the president saying a bunch of weird things on Twitter. But I felt like everything was falling apart. And and that's my, with your larger perspective than mine, I I think that's what I'm asking. Like, are we getting this right? Or is this past we look back at, were American institutions really so great during these periods? I think that, I mean, you know, when you're black, (laughs) the institutions never quite worked. So that um, after Brown, you have an abdication of the president of the United States for upholding the law of the land. And you have the Southern Manifesto um, signed by over 100 members of Congress saying they will defy, they will use all of their power to defy the U.S. Supreme Court. And so that put then the implementation of Brown solely on the backs of the courts. And so the system wasn't working And it was obvious it wasn't working. And this is part of the reason why you get um, mass civil disobedience in the the guise of the civil rights movement, because the institutions failed to function. I think that part of what makes this feel so different, though, is that there is a very real question about 
the competence and the ability of the man in the White House who has inordinate power, but wields it in the most sometimes childish, sometimes destructive, oftentimes grifting way. And that then creates this sense of panic. What is he going to do next? And it doesn't appear that there are any adults in the room. And that also creates this sense of panic. And it's the way that the the structures, for instance, of the international system itself, the NATO alliance, the the series of trade agreements, all of those pieces were just scrapped uh, without much discussion or, or, or denigrated, questioned without a lot of thought, without a lot of deliberation, all of those things that we tend to think of as the way that government functions. And so that's where I think the panic comes in, is that, um, so I remember when Bush was selected by the Supreme Court, Bush II, W. I thought, Lord, they just put an Uzi in the hands of a child. When Trump was selected, I thought, oh, my God, they just put nukes in the hands. <laughs> and I can't finish the rest of that sentence. because. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one thing, one thing this yeah. brings up to me is, so I going back to this conversation I had with Professor Haney, he gave me this interesting idea, which was that we talk about America as having been a liberal democracy, but it was a Heron Volk liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. A, a liberal democracy for white people. And for white yes. people, it worked out pretty well as a liberal democracy. They're, they're, yes. It was actually a well-functioning system. But that's just another way of saying it wasn't actually a liberal democracy. <laughs> and something that you focus on in, in White Rage, which is has been a very helpful concept for me, is the idea of, of visibility and respectability. And, and a point you make is that oftentimes protest, uh, in, in the case of the book, black protest, uh, black response, because it often has to operate outside the system, it's very visible. People are afraid of it. It seems disorderly, chaotic. Whereas y- y- you write that white rage, it doesn't have to take to the streets and face rubber bullets to be heard. It carries an aura of respectability and it has access to the courts and police and legislatures and governors who can cast its efforts as noble. And I'm interested in that idea of visibility here because on the one hand, the weirdness of Trump is very visible. What he does is super visible. And on the other hand, the abuses of the system in the past, I think, have been less visible. But the the difference between how much I'm attuned to Trump's lunacy um, <laughs> versus how much he's actually getting done. You bring up NATO. He's not, t- in fact, touched the NATO alliance for all that he's talked about it. And on the other hand, in the past, how much more comfortable I am reading those histories, even as a lot of what was going on was worse. It's made me think a lot about the bias we have in the media and we have in telling our country's story towards the visibility and abnormality of actions as opposed to perhaps their real consequence or, or, or moral offense. And, and that was the genesis of white rage, actually, because there was such media attention on the flames in Ferguson and 
you know, and, and the pundits were all, y'all, look at that black rage. Look at pe- black people burning up where they live. Oh, can you believe they're burning up where they live? Oh. And they weren't paying attention to what I say. We were so focused in on the flames that we missed the kindling. And the kindling were those policies in Ferguson, the policies of massive disfranchisement that transformed 67% of the population into 6% of those who uh, turn out to vote in the 2013 municipal election. You know, when you can take 67% down to 6%, that's Jim Crow. When, you know, it's the policy of those schools, the schools that did not function, the schools that Michael Brown came out of that were on probation from the state of Missouri for 15 years. And it's a police force that looked at that Black community as revenue generators, not to protect and serve, but how much money can we extract from you to run this government? Hmm, 25% of the, the city's operating budget. Wow. That kind of kindling, it, it wasn't done, as I say, with a, a Klan cross-burning. It was done in, in school board meetings. It was done in the mayor's office. It was done in city council with respectable people drafting and implementing policies that were so racially destructive. And that's why I set out to, to make white rage visible because its respectability provides that kind of cloak of, of invisibility. It provides that shield of, well, you know, they've got judges' robes on. It must be fine. No, not actually. <laughs> Early in 2016, somewhere around about May or so, I, I wrote a, an op-ed where I said the the problem that the GOP is having right now with Trump, because this is when they're still like, oh, no, not him, the, the established GOP, was because he was making visible the Southern strategy that the Republicans had implemented since 1968. Actually, a little bit before then, is, uh, you know, but that it it was to use these dog whistles, as Ian Haney Lopez talks about dog whistle politics, where you talk about welfare queens, where you talk about law and order, where you talk about people being criminals, people being lazy, not having initiative, um, and and using those kinds of dog whistles allowed the Republicans to woo those white Southern Democrats away from the Democratic Party because they were angry because the Democrats, particularly um, LBJ, had signed off on the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so in that wooing, the Republicans brought that kind of toxin fully into the party. And it became more and more virulent with each primary <laughs> till the point where Trump is not a surprise. It's not a surprise to those of us who have been watching this, who have been tracking this, who have been studying it. It appears to have been a surprise to the establishment uh, Republicans who could not believe that they had lost control of their base. Talk to me about that absence of surprise, because one thing that it was a surprise to me, to be fair, that, that Donald Trump won the election. But then I, I wonder and I read books like yours and I think, 
when historians write about this period, will the narrative make much more sense? Will it just be Barack Obama was the first black president and he was followed by a white backlash president? And it won't seem strange at all that, that this period we're living in with all of its tumult and volatility and, and oddity, when you frame it in the grand historical narrative in a country where we had Reconstruction and the Southern strategy and the backlash to the civil rights era and all the rest of it, that the idea that the first black president would be followed by something more like this, that it'll just look like, of course it would be. Why, why was everybody so surprised? Is that your view on this? Um, pretty much. <laughs> it, <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 you want to be surprised. You want to believe. But it was just watching the horrific response to Obama's presidency. Um, gun sales soared when he was president. They had been on the decline. But when Obama became president, gun sales went up and they went up among whites who were, you know, part of that narrative of, you know, the government's trying to take our guns and the government, we got to protect ourselves from the government, which means you got to protect yourself from this black guy who's the president. Um, that you saw the kind of disrespect um, that was supported coming from members of Congress, like when Joe Wilson screams at him, you lie during a joint session of Congress. And Wilson got over $2 million in donations after screaming, you lie, at the president of the United States. And so when you see that, you know that all of that talk about post-racial was just talk. You, 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 you knew that um, the, the virulence, the hatred, the racism was deeply embedded. Um, and that, you know, and you hoped against hope. And you, you organized against um, the possibility. And you mobilized. And you phone called. And you donated. You did all of those things to try to keep that toxin at bay. And it didn't happen. So the counter-argument people offer on this mm -hmm. is Barack Obama won two terms. Mm -hmm. He was very popular when he left office at the end of his second term. A lot of folks believe, I'm among the people who believe, that if he had run for, if he had been able to run again, he would have beat Trump. And so people say... Well, how can it be racism? How can it be white backlash? If Barack Obama was popular, is still more popular than Donald Trump has ever been, and probably would have won if he ran again. I mean, Donald Trump didn't run against Obama. He ran against Hillary Clinton. So isn't this a story that doesn't really fit the facts? Okay, so the facts are, are that the majority of whites who voted and they are the only racial group who voted in the majority for Donald Trump. The only racial group that voted in the majority for Donald Trump. That's a fact. And that's a fact we've got to wrestle with. It's just like looking at 
in a in a different way, like the the race in Alabama with Roy Moore. That should have been slam dunk easy, particularly after the Washington Post report about um, his stalking and sexual assault or alleged sexual assault of teenage girls when he is an assistant district attorney. Pedophilia should create revulsion. Let's just put that as a baseline. But when you look at that election, he won the majority of whites in Alabama because he offered them the power of whiteness in ways that Doug Jones, who was, you know, so not a flaming liberal, (laughs) um, could not. You know, when he says, you know, America was great, you know, basically back in the days of slavery because that's when families were strong. Black families weren't strong. Black families were ripped apart because of slavery. But that hearkening back to or think about when um, after the election, uh, Trump flew into Alabama and he's met by Jeff Sessions. And he's not just met by Jeff Sessions. He's met by Jeff Sessions surrounded by women in antebellum dresses. As if this was the old South again. There is this hearkening back to what is seen as the good old days. That's, that is the toxin that we have to deal with if we're going to move beyond this, if we're going to break this cycle of, of, as I talk about in White Rage, of Black advancement um, in terms of citizenship rights um, being met with a series of policies designed to undermine and undercut those rights. So let me ask you about that idea of advancement as the triggering agent here. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, I think, way of looking at this period is to say that we have been in an era of profound demographic change. Uh, one of the things that happened during Obama's presidency was for the first time, a majority of infants in America were non-white. Mm-hmm. You see these projections that America will be majority minority by 2045, roughly. And that for all our politics feels conflictual and angry and bitter – that actually these conflicts are healthy, that they are historically marginalized or disempowered groups beginning to demand more of the citizenship rights that they have, at least in theory, been guaranteed. And that, yeah, if that creates more conflict, if it creates more backlash, it's part of perfecting the union. It has always been the case that racial progress created conflict in this country. So should we think of Trump, should we think of this era, should we think of some of the collisions we saw in the Obama era as a necessary part of this kind of improvement and that it's the stability that we sometimes exult in of of past periods, that stability was often came at the cost of groups not being able to ask for what they deserved and that that stability was perhaps not a stability worth honoring. And, and, and that, I love that framing because in so many ways, that kind of stability was the stability. It's, it's the kind of stability that Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of in Letter from the Birmingham Jail, where uh, white ministers are saying, you know, 
We get it. But, you know, you're 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 moving too fast and you just need to, you know, just be patient. Um, you, you need to not be doing all of these is protest. Uh, it'll come in the by and by because it it felt chaotic. It felt destabilizing and, and stability. We want stability, but that stability is based on systemic inequality. And it's based on the acquiescence of people to that systemic inequality. And when Blacks were like, no, <laughs> no, uh, the the anger was not at the system itself, but the anger was at Black people for identifying the structural flaws in the system. Um, you know, you talked about, for instance, how you know, um, my earlier work dealt with African-Americans' human rights in the Cold War. Um, one of the things that became very clear, for instance, is that whenever there was a lynching and the Soviets or those in India or in Africa would begin to um, publicize this horrific tragedy in the United States, like the Monroe, Georgia lynching, where four African-Americans were killed, including two women, in 1946. The response from the State Department, the foreign policy bureaucracy, was not, oh my God, this lynching is horrific. The response was, oh, why are they publicizing this? It's to make us look bad. And so the anger was at those who were publicizing it, not the anger at those who had committed these atrocities. So this is part and parcel of the way that the U.S. deals with protest, deals with what is seen as instability because, again, and you know, it's what we talked about early on. When you have a, a national narrative of, of aspiration that seems like achievement, and when you have a national narrative of merit, um, and that those who have have earned every last bit of it, and those who don't haven't done anything to deserve it. Um, then those protests look aberrational. They look um, as if they're attacking the system that had provided all of that achievement, that had provided the, the wealth of resources. Just look at the way that the football players in the NFL were maligned, that a protest about police gunning down Black people, many of whom were unarmed, with no consequences in the criminal justice system, became warped into this, they hate the flag, they hate the country, they hate veterans, they hate the police. Wow. And they're not grateful for all that we have done for them, for all that we have given them. That is how we deal as a nation with those who are bringing out, holding up the mirror saying, these are your aspirations, but this is what you really do. I want to go back to the Cold War for a second. Mm -hmm. Not me personally, I love the Cold but, War. but us as a, as a conversation. 
<laughs> I've been thinking a little bit about the ways in which there is this conversation now about the poison of identity politics, the poison of group politics, and the need for a unifying national identity, mm. an identity as Americans, not mm -hmm. just one group or another group. And I've been thinking a bit about the way in which the identity of American was, the, the post-war identity of American was forged against foreign threat. I mean, we integrated the armed forces around the World War, right? That wasn't something we just did because we thought it was a good idea. It was something we did to, to, to fight a global conflict. And much of the civil rights uh, movement, one reason it had the force it did was there was a real fear around communism and a, a fear that racial apartheid at home was making us look bad abroad. And, and I wonder how much part of the, this feeling that our identity as a nation is breaking down is coming because there isn't that unifying external threat that we forge an identity in opposition to. Um, I would think about that differently. One of the things that becomes clear is that the identity of American was coded white. That was American. And that that American is the one then that people are hearkening back to in terms of we need to get rid of this identity politics. But in getting rid of this identity politics, they're not talking about getting rid of the structural inequalities that have been based on that identity politics. And so it's another version of Black people, brown people, women, hush, <laughs> understand your place and get in it and be quiet. That's what that really is. And so it doesn't say, and I find this fascinating, it's, it's like the, the, the studies done several years ago, a couple of decades ago, actually, wow, by like David Rodiger that talked about whiteness. Because what that does is, is that identity politics is not white. Identity politics are African-Americans talking about voter suppression or police shooting young Black people. Identity politics are Latinos who are concerned about America's immigration policy. Identity politics are women saying, you know, we are really sick and tired of being harassed and sexually assaulted um, when we're just trying to work. So that's identity politics. But identity politics is not the poor white woman in Kentucky who is concerned because those people have better health insurance than she does or that she supposes. That's not identity politics. Identity politics isn't the secretary of the treasury, um, Mnuchin, and his wife talking about, you know, as, as that picture, that horrific picture where they're holding up those dollar bills or, you know, sheets of money and crafting policies that ensure that rich whites get even richer. That's not identity politics. Identity politics then is coded as people of color. Identity politics is coded as the LGBTQ community. And identity politics is coded as women who do not know their place.
So I agree with all that, actually. I think my quote, I think the the place where I, I don't want to say I have a different read. I'm not sure I do, but the, 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 the place where I wonder is whether or not some of the moral propulsion for advancement, some of the argument people made to argue mm-hmm. against who said, no, that's just identity politics, mm-hmm. came from being able to say, yeah, maybe so. But if you want this country to be strong enough, to to, to, to see moral enough, to have an attractive enough system to be able to, to triumph, that we have to live up to our ideals more fully. That I, I think the, 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 the place where I have some unsettledness here is this feeling that there is a breakdown, because people do have this feeling that there's a breakdown in our sense of ourself as a nation, rather than it having like an easy, nice solution. Like we should just have better rhetoric. Our politicians should say nicer <laughs> things. Whether or not that a, a lot of America has been forged amidst other kinds of threats that we have an us versus a them, and then in the absence of, of of a them, the thems become more internal. And as you say, there's always been a dimension of that. But I don't know. Maybe maybe this doesn't maybe this doesn't go maybe this doesn't go where I think it does. But I, I keep getting this question, and I have this question on this podcast a lot: of well, what could reverse polarization? What would be a strong enough force to interrupt some of the dynamics and trends we see in this country? And and people want a nice answer. People want an answer of like leadership. Everybody always wants the answer <laughs> to everything to be leadership. But I, I worry that hard problems sometimes only get dislodged by other, even worse problems. And that I, I think about what would what will a historian in 2050 be writing about, you know, the next however many years? And I could very much imagine it being that we were on this path until for whatever reason, the country had to develop a different sense of itself because instead of the insecurity being internal towards each other, it became external. And all of a sudden, we we needed each other to be a little bit more on the same page. Well, you know, and so one of the things is like during the Cold War, you know, when you think about, for instance, the McCarthy witch hunts, a key element in um, Joseph McCarthy's basically march through American society to ferret out all of these communists was that immigrants were coded as communist. They had, I, I mean, it's, it's something about being a historian and getting into the record. So let me just be a nerd for a minute. This um, is this is a show for it. Okay. <laughs> so I'm in, I think this was the NAACP papers at the Library of Congress. And um, one of their members sent this to them because the member worked like at the post office. And so government employees were being asked in terms of their loyalty to the United States. And the questions were, to, in order to figure out whether you were a communist. Are you a member of the NAACP? Whoa. Next question. Have you ever had somebody of another race in your home for a social occasion? Wow. That's this actually making communism a- sound pretty good. <laughs> right? <laughs> like and, if that's and- the definition... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because they were like, well, you know, because 
Nobody walks around with their little communist button on. So how do we tell? And they say, okay, so we're going to tell by the things that communists like. If somebody else is doing that, then they must be a communist. So communists talked about racial equality. So if there's a group that talks about racial equality, they must be a communist. If you have somebody of another race in your home and say that's a black woman and you don't have her there doing the cleaning, but she's there for a social occasion, you must be a communist. And so, in fact, then loyalty and Americanness, again, get coded in these very racialized white ways that become exclusive. So you have then black folks and you have like the NAACP going, we're not communist. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you are because you believe in racial equality. And so they have to spend so much of their time fighting against the charge of being communist. Because if you're communist, then you end up on the attorney general's list. And on that attorney general's list, everything that you're fighting for goes away. Your funding goes away. Your members go away. I mean, it's like the scarlet letter. And so this this need for an external enemy, I feel more pogo. We have seen the enemy and he is us. And we have to deal with us. We have got to understand how destructive racism is. If we say we are patriots, then there's some business we've got to handle. And that conversation is among us. That hard work is among us. That reframing is among us. It's not about an external enemy. That's not going to help. Whenever we've had so-called external enemies, that becomes weaponized as a way to further marginalize people of color in the United States. Yeah. I think you've successfully talked me out of this position. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me ask you about another version of the, the, of the us and the conversation. So you're mm-hmm. at Emory. Yes. Uh, which I assume has students at it. We have and fabulous th- students. Yes. There is this ongoing conversation right now. It's all over the op-ed pages and it's it has a real purchase in the conversation I hear it on podcasts I listen to about political correctness on campus, about free speech on campus, about the idea that there is a kind of activism and a kind of boundary on the conversation that is settling wherein students are not willing to, to listen to alternative perspectives, wherein there is so much uh, competition to be seen as on the right side of social justice issues that there's no space for debate left. I'm curious how you read that discussion and discourse. I read it as fairy tale and silencing. I don't know what campuses they're on. I don't. Well, they would say, you know, Middlebury where Charlie Murray, Charles Murray got shouted down and there was there was uh, some amount of physical violence. I think Susanna Hoff Summers was just at Lewis and Clark. Uh, there's no platforming. Commencement speakers get disinvited. You know, they, they're, they're, they, they have examples of the things they're upset about. Okay. And, and, and I've, I've just, I'm, I, and so... So from those instances, and so I shouldn't have been so blanket, but 
One of the things about universities is that it's about testing ideas. And we do that. This, this, I mean, so I'm, and, and, and I'm struggling here because I'm trying to keep my fury in. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the language of political correctness is, again, one of those things that has been used as a knife to plunge in and then turn. And I, I, and so what is political correctness? Is it that you can no longer holler the N-word at a student who happens to be on your campus? You can't call a woman the C-word? That language of political correctness, again, becomes ahistorical. Because what we were dealing with was, say, when James Meredith, an Air Force veteran, went to enroll at Ole Miss, he was doggone near killed. I mean, they, they torched that campus. And there's N-words all over the place. So are we saying that political correctness means that you just get to say anything to anybody? Or does it mean that you got to act like you got some home training? This seems to me to be actually one of the interesting parts of this debate. That, and, and, and why, when it's framed in terms of free speech, I really get annoyed. <laughs> because one of the things here is that we all seem to understand that there's the, the Constitution protects speech. Mm-hmm. And you can say terrible things to people with constitutional protection. But there are things we agree you shouldn't say. I mean, I think the people concerned about even uh, about even the things I'm talking about, they don't think you should be able to go to a campus. Most of them don't think you should be able to go to a campus and start using racial slurs. Mm-hmm. But then there's this question of when does speech, particularly speech that is more respectably framed, even if the ideas it contains are very controversial, when does speech become something that should be contested. And, you know, that contesting can go from protesting all the way to no platforming. I mean, those are also, I believe, protected forms of speech, um, but, uh, as long as you don't get into violence. And I think that we're having a lot of trouble, uh, and partly when it gets framed in this free speech way, that we there is agreement that there are kinds of speech that should at the very least be discouraged, that should not be invited to speak on campuses. But there's a, a real contest over where that line gets drawn. And I, I mean, to me, a lot of this looks like, you know, some places even where I see excess, you know, colleges are, are, are places of excess. I mean, I remember when I was in college, people are trying on ideas and taking off ideas and trying on personas and, you know, college is weird. Um, but, but it also, but it also seems to me that there is a, like a genuinely important contest happening over what should be the acceptable boundaries of debate. And Donald Trump is trying to open things up in one direction. There are people trying to change things in another. There's a lot of discomfort. Um, you know, I see a lot of discomfort from older folks about the ways in which the younger generations want to redefine how we talk about gender. And I don't know. I, I think there's an interesting actual substantive disagreement happening here that is very rarely talked about as what it is. And instead, there's a lot of weaponized language around it. But, you know, you're there. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious how it looks to you. 
And so it looks like um, Milo came on the campus. Oh, did he go to Emory? Yeah. He was invited in by the Republicans, young Republicans. Um, And he wasn't booted off campus. Um, He and his minions um, were as vile and as, as they could be. And when I was at Mizzou, um, Clarence Thomas came, uh, Ward Connolly, who helped lead the anti-affirmative action initiative in California, was there. Uh, the exchange um, with Connerly was heated but respectful. So there seems to be this kind of sense that colleges all over are are, you know, that only the lefties can 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 have a space there. That's not true. It's just not true. And 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 so my and 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 let's face it, speech has always been debated. That is why you have a series of Supreme Court cases dealing with what you can and cannot say. What is it, you know, what is constitutionally protected speech and what is not? So the fact that we are in a debate about speech is not abnormal, but the way that it's being framed as as victimization of the right is where I take umbrage. As the right cannot have a space in which it can have its ideas shared on a campus. That is the fact that Charles Murray, whose work has been absolutely debunked as being unscientific with horrific methods, is still invited onto campus to give supposedly an academic talk speaks volumes. And I didn't mean to use that pun. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about the argument Donald Trump makes on this and and some of Trump's supporters, which is that there is, that, that he, that he himself represents a backlash to all this, that he himself represents a backlash to the idea of what you can and can't say. One of the things that I hear in that is that something that is going to come along with a period of demographic change and shift is an effort to redefine what is and isn't offensive. I think you see this uh, in a lot of dimensions of American life right now. Mm-hmm. And that, that will also lead to its own kinds of backlash. And I wonder about the degree to which we should understand that as a pure speech question versus a degree to which we have to understand that as a real contest over political and societal advantage because those things are, are are downstream from speech. When I hear that argument made about what Trump is, I often think it's true. But the idea that it is trivial is where I kind of get off the, the train, that it is seems to me to be of a piece with Trump wanting to preserve a kind of cultural hegemony for what he sees as his coalition for a much wider, somewhat older coalition against claims that express themselves in speech claims, but also express themselves in other claims um, for resources and other things in, you know, a a kind of rising and different political and and increasingly powerful political coalition. Oh, absolutely. You remember All in the Family with Archie Bunker? I do. Well, 
remember well, I know that was before how your I feel time. about it, but <laughs> I know of. <laughs> right. I saw it in reruns. Um, and in there, you saw played out on television the sense of cultural clash and loss. As Archie was about as bigoted and as open with his bigotry in the ways that he um, defined people, the language he used to describe them. And you saw him hanging on economically by a thread. And he was railing against his son-in-law, Meathead, this liberal um, who had all of these expansive ideas about humanity and rights and justice, and that there was no space for somebody like Archie in that. In many ways, that language about Trump doesn't sugarcoat stuff. He just says it, and I like it. Um, that's an Archie Bunker moment where Trump provides a space for people who are feeling like they're losing their, their power, their status in society, um, and what he offers them. And, I, and I've said this in the paperback for White Rage, is he's basically offering them a, a kind of neo-apartheid state where using the power of the state, you discipline and strip rights from vast numbers of labor, particularly Hispanics and African-Americans. And we see that with policing and deportation where you create labor without rights. And then what he's offering is that for whites, then they can continue to accrue the benefits and the resources of this society based on this labor without rights. Now, when you read the fine print, he doesn't mean all whites, but everybody thinks they're in on the con and that they're not the mark. And that's where then the kind of theatrical piece that Trump brings to it, the, the reality star comes into it in terms of providing the theatrics to make people feel like they're part of something while he's in fact stripping their very being, their very resources out from underneath them. Let me ask you a, a question about projection on that, which mm -hmm. is, so if we're going through this period of demographic change, if, if the underlying trends are, are what we believe them to be, and if your thesis that, you know, racial progress always leads to this rage, always leads to this kind of backlash is true too. And so now we're entering this period where the white majority is weakening, but nobody's really going to be dominant. It's not like it gets replaced by something else. We just enter into a, a period where everything is somewhat more fractured, where the contest can be won by anybody uh, at any moment and then re-won by someone else later. Is there a way for a country like ours to manage that gracefully, peacefully, or are we in for a long, bumpy road of, of conflict of which this might be, I don't want to say the beginning because of the history we've talked about here, but but it may not look so bad given where we could be in, in 15 or 20 years. Is there a version of this that plays out 
that strengthens us, or is this going to be a, a real ongoing political war? I love that question. <laughs> oh, good, because um, it scares me to ask it. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that question because it reminds me of, um, and I wasn't there then, but the uh, revolution of 1848 in Germany, a little bit before my time. And that was a moment where in that revolution, they may have, they were trying to get rid of the monarchy, the you know, the authoritarian regime, and really usher in a real democracy. And then that uprising was put down. And later on, looking back in hindsight, like particularly in the Nazi years, it was called that moment where history failed to turn. We're in that moment where we really do have the ability to figure out what kind of nation we're going to be. And I think that that's the scary piece when you, you you talk about, you know, writing and following up and interviewing on everything this Trump's done. And, and then you look back, and you're like, OK, but am I looking at institutions or I'm just looking at the crazy stuff he said? But we have in that moment, that's why it feels so crazy, because we do understand this, is that if what we do is we move forward, if what we have are whites who realize that this nation could be incredibly strong and vibrant. And that vibrancy comes from a much more truly democratic system than we have had. And it comes from figuring out how the enormous resources that the U.S. has can be invested in its people and not just in a handful of whites. And handful is really a, a larger number in the U.S., but, you know, but not just in a, 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 a strata of whites. Then we can get there. We can get there to what I think is something that has not really been seen before, which is how do you create a vibrant multiracial democracy that truly works? Wow. If we fall back into our traditional patterns, then buckle up, we're in for a bumpy ride. It's going to be bad. That seems to me to be a good place to... (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be bad, I feel like, is where possibly all of my podcast interviews end. But that seems (laughs) like a good place to, to bring things to a close. So... Let me ask you the question I, I, I used in the podcast. What are three books on these topics or on others that, that you've read that have influenced you that you think the audience should read? I love Matthew Desmond's Evicted. That book breaks my heart. But you see in there poor people struggling with very limited resources to to find a decent place to live. But the way that the system is set up, uh, they're spending over half their income on dilapidated housing that they really can't afford. They end up getting evicted. They end up dealing with homelessness. They manage to almost get back on their feet and they end up right back in that cycle again. It begins to help us understand how systemic inequality actually works. I love uh, Matthew Desmond's Evicted. 
I love Tressie McMillan Cottom's Lower Ed. That book deals with the for-profit sector of colleges and how they prey, and that's P-R-E-Y, on the aspirations of those who are seeking a college education in order to have a better life. And seeing what this predatory system does um, in terms of saddling people with enormous student debt, student loan debt, um, while not providing all that's in the glitz and the glamour of their advertisements. Um, That book is powerful. The other book, I guess several, but the other book that I actually love is the Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann's um, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, because that one really gave me an insight into where we are right now with the Republican Party, understanding how the Republican Party moved from Um, a governing party to a party of opposition Um, and how it became more and more skewed toward the right, which then didn't provide any kind of space for moderate Republicans and the kind of reaching across the aisle in order to govern. That book was phenomenal in laying that out. Carol Anderson, thank you very much. Uh, Thank you so much, Ezra. Thank you to Carol Anderson. I enjoyed that immensely. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast network production, and we will be back next week.